postdoc chapter of the American Society of Microbiology in the Texas Medical Center. Uh, nice to have you all back with us. My name is Aisha. I'm Naomi. And today we are very excited because we have new co-hosts, two new co-hosts joining us, and they are... I'm Alex. And I'm Celso. Awesome. So we were originally going to do a podcast on foodborne illnesses, which we still plan to do um, as our next segment, but today we are going to take the opportunity to take advantage of an opening we have in a schedule of a very busy expert. Um, and we're going to have an expert segment uh, with Dr. DuPont, who is uh, a pioneer in the field of fecal microbiota transplants, FMTs, colloquially known as poop transplants, and we will discuss all topics that are relevant to that. All right, so Celso, you want to take it away and introduce Dr. DuPont? Yeah, so today our, our efforts to just uh, provide the public with more knowledge on the current treatments for infectious diseases, uh, we're going to get the aid of Dr. Herbert Dupont, who is the director of the Center for Infectious Diseases, and who has been working on this very same subject for a very long time, I believe maybe 50 years, maybe that, something like that? Close enough. Close enough, <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, so we just have you, have, you have a very vast experience on the subject, and right now we have a lot of questions that are that we do believe are public health important, and that I think uh, are not as, uh, while the public is always keenly aware of the current epidemics of infectious diseases taking place, I don't think they're as aware of what the current treatments against it are. And so we're kind of hoping to get your input on that. And one in particular that is really being a big uh, topic right now is fecal microbiota transplants, uh, with otherwise known as FMTs. So can you just, do you mind just explaining, explaining it to us what this is and what and how it's becoming so effective? Well, really it helps to go back to the beginning uh, of the microbiome, which is a new science that was brought about by the National Institutes of Health just a decade ago when they um, knew they had the methods to fingerprint every microbe of the body, and they embarked on this $120 million project to identify all these microbes. And so we've been able to define, uh, define a condition called dysbiosis, where the uh, microbiome, which is the totality of bacteria, viruses, fungi in the intestinal tract, and when they become awry, they become disturbed in a pathologic way, we begin to have changes in mood. We have changes in the way we feel in our health and diseases are produced. And by taking bacteria, microbes from a healthy person, intestine, and putting it into the colon of someone with one of these conditions and being able to reverse that disease or disorder, that's what fecal microbiota transplantation is, FMT. It's something that's been done in the veterinary world for more than 100 years. So um, we kind of jumped <coughs> to fecal microbiome transfers. Um, does this relate to foodborne illness? Like, is it, have you seen cases where someone comes in with, you know, food poisoning and ends up needing um, this treatment, and what are the implications? What, when does someone actually need um, fecal microbiome transfer? Is it microbiota transfer? Right. 
Yeah, this is where you have, FMT is used strictly speaking with disturbed intestinal microbiome, or these 100 trillion organisms that live in your lower GI tract. Acute diarrhea is not considered a disturbance of the microbiome. So FMT is not useful for acute, but could be very useful for chronic or persistent diarrhea. Okay. Okay, so, and that would be, all right, so um, I guess since we're on this topic, we'll just slow with it and continue with this topic. So you're kind of the pioneer of this, of this um, method of treatment, is that correct? Well, one of them. Okay, so how did, you, how did you get started, you know, were there hurdles to getting there? Like, I don't know, I'm sure the first time you suggested like, hey, why don't we take the fecal matter of one patient and give it to the other? People probably gave you some looks, eh? Well, the first time I did that was in 1970. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that was eight years before the discovery of Clostridium difficile, uh, C. diff, which is now known to be a major cause of antibiotic-associated diarrhea, that it does respond to FMT. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't want to use up all your time hearing about that patient, but it's an interesting story later. I mean, we'd love to, actually. <laughs> actually, yeah, we love stories. <laughs> we love stories. You know, this, this, anecdotes this, are wonderful. This is a heck of a story. All right. This was before there were IRBs, ethics committees. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had read about a group of six patients with chronic diarrhea after antibiotics getting an FMT and that was the totality of knowledge. And I went to the chairs of the Department of Medicine be, and surgery and all the various departments at the medical school at the University of Maryland, where I was, uh, where I was, and to get their permission. And the chairman of surgery said, I'll get your stool for the donor product for you from a patient with an elective procedure. So he went to see a woman who was in for an elective gallbladder removal for gallstones, totally asymptomatic, mm -hmm. no symptoms, brought me the stool sample. I homogenized it in my lab and uh, uh, put it into the colon of my patient who was dying with renal failure and profuse diarrhea, and magically the patient got well. So I said, I better, I better publish this. So I went in to talk to the donor. And it turned out she was a typhoid carrier. She was in for cholecystectomy because her gallstones were uh, uh, colonized, infected by salmonella typhi. Mm -hmm. So I put uh, 11 logs of salmonella typhi per gram of stool in the rectum of my patient. Now, there are two points about this. One is uh, anybody's stool works for FMT, and the, other, uh, and the other is you don't get typhoid fever from the rectum. You get it from Pyre's patches in the small bowel. Well, thank God for that. Yeah. So you, you wanted the story, I gave you a story. And, wow. in, and interestingly, I've not published that <laughs> for ridicule factor, although I presented it to the FDA and the NIH when began to discuss FMT with them at the beginning. Wow. Okay. Well, so since then, IRBs have been established. Yes. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit more about, um, 
maybe some of the some of the things that you encounter having to talk to the FDA and. Um, well, it's interesting. We had a meeting uh, in May of 2013 in Washington. <clears throat> I presented to the FDA and the NIH and uh, tried to justify this procedure for C. diff. Now, an interesting thing about the FDA is they are required by law, federal law, to require an investigational new drug application huge application for the use of any new drug for a disease or disorder. And so what we were saying is let's do FMT and uh, uh, on the C. diff, which is pure dysbiosis, pure abnormality of the microbiome. And let's not worry about an IND, let's people, let people do it without an IND. And they said, you're asking us to break the law. And I said, yeah, that's what we're asking you to do. Because these patients are dying. 29,000 patients a year die from C. diff because we're not replacing their microbiome. Well, believe it or not, about two months after our meeting, they said, okay. For, for C. diff, mm -hmm. anybody can do an FMT as long as they have local IRB approval. That's the only requirement. They have a protocol and they have local IRB approval. So C, uh, FMT for C. diff, for recurrent C. diff, then became a standard treatment not requiring a very formal IND application. Are there other indications for FMTs right now? Well, it's, uh, that's what I'm heavily involved in right now, and I have four INDs with the FDA. One is for recurrent C. diff. Another one is for uh, a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease associated with type 2 diabetes and obesity. Mm -hmm. Another one is irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. And get this one, the other one is Parkinson's disease. Really? The gut microbiome is heavily involved in the brain function mm -hmm. and how the brain functions. And the gut is very much involved in Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so it's involved in multiple, any kind of neurodegenerative disorder? They all, well, we learned about syphilis, that's a primary brain infection. But these, uh, these chronic disorders really appear to have their origin in the intestinal tract. Mm -hmm. And I could explain how the gut produces these diseases if you wish, but that's going to take you down a path that <laughs> you haven't planned on. Yeah, that's a, right. that's a super <laughs> yeah. interesting topic, and maybe we can cover that. Yeah, we could actually I mean, yeah, do a whole thing on that. Yeah, <laughs> um, we actually recently had a journal club paper, so in our department we have to, we review articles. Mm -hmm. um, and someone presented a paper looking at fecal transplant in mice and their the symptoms of Parkinson's, yeah. um, and it had, and it helped. And so, what's been the response mm -hmm. to FMTs by the clinicians themselves? Are they been pretty? Have they been wanting to implement this in their patients, or are patients still choosing a more, you know, for lack of a better word, attractive route of sort of treatment? Well, the C. diff story, where this has become successful. There is no other treatment for recurrent C. diff, and these patients are demanding it. Mm -hmm. And patients who see chronic recurrent C. diff find nothing they do works, and so they're after it like crazy. 
And of course, the other thing is that all the papers on the microbiome that are published, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, even The Economist is having articles about the microbiome and its importance in health and disease. So people are ready to sign up for an FMT with no hesitation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it's I guess when you're dying, nothing really matters, <laughs> yeah. right? You're yeah. ready to do well, anything. Well, that's really right. And I can tell you, again, anecdotal stories about our patients and how, how incredibly happy they are about what we've done and restored their life to them. And, you know, five, ten years down the line, are they functioning? Well, oh yes, this is this, this is, is chronic it. it's one treatment. transfer and it's done. That's it. And but the problem is they're susceptible to C. diff again. So uh, if they get started getting bombed with a bunch of antibiotics and go in the hospital, bingo, they're starting over again. Mm -hmm. And I educate them about what antibiotics. If they, my our patients that we've treated close to 200, uh, if they are going to have to have an antibiotic. First of all, they pull out a sheet of paper I've given them and tell the doctor, these are the drugs I can take, these are the ones I can't take, mm -hmm. and if you're going into that group where I can't take it, you call Dr. DuPont. That's what they know, <laughs> and that's what's happening. I get calls all the time from these doctors, and I have to go through it with them. Do you know what C. diff is? Do you know how seriously ill your patient was? Let's try something else, and I help them find the right antibiotic. Going a little bit back to the FDA approval, I think one of the biggest concerns the FDA has is the safety issues behind FMT. And I think the first, it starts with finding a healthy donor. So you said yourself, um, your first case was, was a patient with um, typhoid fever. So how do you find- Typhoid carrier. Uh, typhoid, typhoid carrier. Sorry, typhoid carrier. Um, so <coughs> how would you determine a healthy donor and make sure like they're fecal matter is indeed going to be beneficial for the recipient. Okay, great question. We, we have only four donors that provide enough product we could treat 500 patients. Uh, and, uh, Wait, so all of this poop comes from four people? <laughs> that's right. Everything from four people. Now, these four people are people with no diseases that could mm -hmm. be transmitted by this pathway. No central nervous system disease, no malignancy, no diabetes, nothing that is of any signal. And it's not only them, it's their siblings, their parents uh, have to be free of all these diseases. Mm -hmm. Then we take their blood to St. Luke's Hospital Blood Bank and they've run it just to see if they are a successful donor. They have to have a green light there. Then we take blood into our labs here at the University of Texas and look for a variety of other conditions that the blood bank doesn't look for. And then we take a stool from a potential donor and we look for every microbe that could be spread. And we have the most advanced intestinal infection lab in the country. And we look for all those pathogens. If they're clean as a hound's tooth and all these things, they can be a donor. But we have to repeat those tests every two to four weeks. Wow. So these poor donors, are uh, <laughs> they, they have to be interested in this. <laughs> we pay them $10 a stool, uh, and they only know one place to have a bowel movement. That's at our place. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's That's a factory. 
it's a yeah. factor. Now, I don't think fecal microbiota transplantation is, is destined for greatness uh, in the world. I think we're going to be able to identify microbes that can modulate the microbiome successfully, particularly with a proper diet. So we're working hard to be able to replace stool-derived products. But in the meantime, we're going great guns. We've, we've lipolized this material, we've put it in enteric-coated capsules, and we're giving them orally to people, and there's no taste, no smell, uh, no intolerance, and no symptoms. Mm -hmm. Totally. That's phenomenal. And it's just as effective? Just as effective than the treatment, the, the pills versus the... Just as effective. Wow. Okay, so this is actually something that you could actually introduce into developing countries that are affected by Absolutely. this, like much more readily. Absolutely. I, yeah, I can imagine that degree of screening process that you just described for selection of donors to be able to be as effectively introduced into this. I wouldn't this worry about okay, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, the, I mean, I think for research you have to worry about it, but mm -hmm. in terms of therapy, uh, I would take a family a donor in a uh, developing country and just give it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're getting to the point, and I'm going to predict in five years from now, that every course of antibiotics we give a patient, we will follow up a dose of microbiome type yeah. mm -hmm. microbiota to be able to reestablish the microbiome after uh, disruption with antibiotics. But of course, the big thing is making sure people eat the proper foods to have a healthy microbiome. Yeah. I mean, I guess we can talk about that. I mean, what, what, what do you mean by eat the right type? Like, what, do, what kind of food select for the well, better and negative? Let me first of all start with the bad foods. Okay. Uh, the West, so-called Western diet, the McDonald's, <laughs> Burger King diet is awful. Uh, this is too much animal fat, too much sugar, very unhealthy. And How does that necessarily select for types of microbes? I, I'm going to tell you. When you have the Western diet that I described, 100% of that dietary material is absorbed through the small intestines, the 18 feet of small intestines, and it goes out into the body and produces energy and fat. That's the basis of the obesity epidemic. It does not get, it's all processed food, does not get to the colon where these hundred trillion microbes are looking up, all right, I'm ready, I'm ready, and nothing's coming down. Okay. Mm -hmm. What you need are there two key uh, descriptors. One is fiber, mm -hmm. and the other is resistant starches, mm -hmm. and starches uh, that resist absorption. And I can make a list for you of the foods that make a healthy microbiome if you want to go through that. So an unhealthy diet essentially starves your microbes. You don't get anything down there. Right, okay. And a healthy diet feeds the dead microbes. That's right. Because not all the food is absorbed. Right, right. That's you, what makes fiber. Do you, um, do you tell this to your patients? Like, is there like a condition like, here's your fecal transplant, but this is what you need to do maintain, to maintain it. patient that we treat gets a formal list of foods they should eat. Mm -hmm. Got it. And um, one, once we're on this subject, 
Do you, um, I know there have been a bunch of papers out that show that um, um, the, micro, the microbiota of some mice, like if the obese mice transferred to skinny mice would cause those skinny mice to become obese. I guess they started to promote fat absorption or whatnot. Do you take, um, I guess, donations from like healthy sized people to oh, they have factor to be for thin. that? They cannot have a BMI if they're celebrating. Mm -hmm. uh, that's very important. And those studies you're talking about are from uh, Gordon in WashU. Uh, the mouse studies with the four discordant twins, the fat twin right. and the thin twin. They're wonderful studies. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and it, was, it was really neat how he yeah, showed that, the group showed that they could take skinny mice and make them fat, but they did not show that they could take fat mice and make them skinny yeah, by they, transferring. Yeah, yes, they, they, they can. they later show They that? can, yeah, as long as the mouse is on the proper diet. Mm -hmm. But if the mouse is on the diet of the fat twin, there's nothing you can do, mm -hmm. no matter what you give them, to make that mouse thin. So is this like the next like so fat you, diet that might you, actually work? You need the diet plus the microbiota. Got it. But I think microbiota alone is going to do a lot if we mm -hmm. can just get people to have a healthy diet and avoid unnecessary antibiotics. 50% mm -hmm. or more of the antibiotics we use in this country are not needed and they're harmful. Can we go into that a little bit? Um, because I've encountered this um, as a microbiologist. <coughs> People have come to me and said, hey, my, my daughter seems to have a sore throat. Do you think that I should go to the doctor or not? And I'm like, oh, I'm not a physician, and I don't want to take responsibility for this, but why don't you see if she has a fever and other symptoms of strep yeah. before you go ahead and you know, That's right. test. And, and another clue is laryngitis. If there's laryngitis, it is not strep. It's a mm -hmm. virus. Right. It's very helpful, and fever and big swollen lymph nodes and a whitish exudate in the throat is the, are the main indicators to have a check for strep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just in general, this is that was just an example, but in general, for for those listening, you know they're gonna they go to their doctors and their doctor says here here's a script for antibiotics. Bad. Yeah. Should they? Bad. So, bad. Bad. But on the other hand. They want to trust their doctor. So what yeah. are some of the things that they should be taking into account? Okay, sore throats, unless it's a culture-proven strep, no antibiotics. Right. That's one. Bronchitis. In an otherwise healthy person, you know, following a viral infection, you start hocking up awful-looking green stuff, no antibiotics. Acute sinusitis in following a viral infection where you have... Uh, awful stuff in your nose, no antibiotics. Um, uh, otitis media in ch children, infants. Ear, ear infections. <coughs> ear infections. Uh, be careful on that because what happens, the, the head of a child uh, is small in the eustachian tube. The tube from the middle ear to the back of the throat is kinked. And the body head size has to grow to straighten that out. And so what happens is you get fluid build up in the middle ear, and so you get a bulging tympanic membrane, and people say you got otitis media, an ear infection, take antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be red, inflamed, uh, for the doctor to give antibiotics. So many of the courses of these antibiotics these poor kids get are not needed. 
-hmm. Okay, so often ear infections are not actually ear infections and they just They're exist. just fluid in the mm -hmm. middle ear. And if they have a lot of trouble with that and a lot of infections, they're gonna need a tube put in the tympanic membrane so that the eustachian tube that's kinked is functionless anyway. Now we're draining the fluid out of the middle ear just by this tube, and eventually they fall out. It's a wonderful thing for these patients. So is there um, just like a, I guess like a list of things that, so for instance, let's say a child is complaining of ear infection, or earache, right? But they show no other signs, you know, no fever, no headache, no, I mean, they have an earache, but no, you know, overall lethargy, or is it lethargy, lethargy? lethargy. Yeah, lethargy. How do you pronounce that? Lethargy. Lethargy. Ooh, okay, lethargic. Lethargic. Yeah, lethargic. Oh, okay. Lethargy. Yeah. Lethargy. Yeah. Lethargy. Yeah. There you go. But They're not tired. But, but let me, <laughs> let me yeah. talk about an earache. An earache to me is otitis externa. Mm -hmm. That's a canal, like swimmer's ear. Mm -hmm. And that's eardrops. Okay. No problem with that. Typically, otitis media in an infant is fever mm -hmm. and irritability. Not, you know, they can't verbalize a sore ear. So uh, it's a different disease. Okay, but so really, like, if someone is, you know, experiencing fever, that's when they should start worrying about, Fe like... Fever and chronicity, if, when you have it for a while. Mm -hmm. Those are two things. Okay, good. I remember I was in a lecture with you once, and you mentioned that your wife had come home with antibiotics. Well, she didn't Because she home. had the flu. The doctor, <laughs> the doctor <laughs> she, she called said, you with, yeah. a, with a script, the and you're like, what? The doctor said, that's what you should take. And so she went to plan B, that's me. Yeah, because <laughs> she had the flu or something, yeah, right? Which is a virus, 2009 yeah. with the H1N1, the so-called swine flu epidemic, she was perfect for clinical symptoms. Yeah. And that's terrible use of antibiotics. Now, just very recently, actually, um, I recently went to a clinic complaining of some, uh, like, a sore throat and you know, they looked at everything, they did all these tests, of course, they did the strep test and, uh, and everything else, and, you know, it's testing negative on all these things. They even do the culture, uh, they, you know, they do the two-day growth on culture and everything, put it on a plate to see if it'll grow, nothing grows. But still, I'm being recommended antibiotics. F. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me, you know, and I was actually, um, you know, like I was very fortunate to be in a situation where I study C. Diff, you, you know, and so I knew this, and so I actually told my doctor yeah. I would prefer not to take it because there's Good. no confirmation this is bacterial. Good. And so I actually denied the antibiotics, but of course, you know, I spent some time studying this, and so I'm aware of it. But I guess for the public that isn't as aware of this and isn't able to just, you know, have these sort of uh, knowledge like in the back of their mind, just ready to pull out there, is there is, is there maybe like the does the FDA and all these other uh, sort of any government institution sort of provide information on that? CDC, CDC has a program on proper antibiotic use and misuse. And this is the, these are the areas they're focusing on, bronchitis, sinusitis, pharyngitis or sore throats, and otitis. Those are the areas okay. yeah, where the misuse occurs. I mean, those are like the most common things mm -hmm. I yeah. see. I, I see with my friend's kids. Yeah. They're constantly being That's right. prescribed. I'm like, don't take it. <laughs> don't yeah. do that. Okay, but if you're taking it, complete the cycle, but you know, like. By the time a kid reaches adolescence, they've had an average of 18 courses of antibiotics. Wow. It's horrible. I mean, that, that number, has, that number has changed yeah. over the years. It's Is that correct? progressively more. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, but like in the 1990s, was it that high? It, well, it's been high, but it's gotten higher. And, and I'll tell you, there are two problems. One is a doctor who's too trigger happy to give antibiotics, and the other is the patients. I have a, a wealthy uh, businessman here in town who told me that the real mark of wealth of a Houstonian is how many Z-Packs he has in his medicine cabinet. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, people, when they go to the doctor, you gave me a Z-Pack last time when I had a cold, and man, it knocked it out like that, and they put pressure on the doctors. Mm -hmm. and the doctors don't want to lose business, so they'll comply. So it works two ways. It's the doctors need education, and the patients need education. I'm glad that we're talking about it then. Yeah. It really does seem like a bigger problem on the doctor's side then, because the patients, of course, come to the doctors for that information. But so if the doctors are misinformed or not providing that accurate information to the patients, then the patients kind of are susceptible to more misinformation. So why do doctors pres prescribe antibiotics even if it's not necessary? So what is the problem there? Well, the, you, you've hit one of the problems and that is the doctors are not aware that antibiotics don't work in these conditions. Even through medical school training? Yeah. yeah. Well, so I guess that's a big part of it, right? To try to improve uh, education on antibiotics, mechanisms of action, and causes resistance from, you know, starting from medical school through residency and just keep that consistent level of education about this. That's right, but it's not intuitive for someone having medical education to see a young person hocking up purulent sputum to not give antibiotics. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's logical in their own mind. The problem is they don't understand how that bronchitis develops, that it's not an infection. And again, for you all, I can explain to you what is happening with bronchitis to explain why antibiotics don't work. But uh, and sinusitis the same way, but I don't know if your audience is into that. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that touches on the feasibility of it all. Like, I mean, how much can you ask of, you know, you're going through medical training, the amount of information you're getting throughout that process is already mm -hmm. absurd. And so to also, I guess, also just expect them to be keeping up with the current and daily trends of a growing field, like the microbiome is also, how feasible is it really? So I guess, Maybe one of the, would you agree that maybe a, a really big remedy for this would be to just focus on really educating the public so that, you know, the, the, the patients can, will have to be able to also say no to antibiotics? I well? love that. And I tell you, uh, the point that you made that the doctor is the problem, the reason I don't like that perfectly is that I think it may be easier to educate the public, the public than the doctors yeah. mm -hmm. who have sort of ingrained habits so I think the I, I think the answer is both, yeah. but do not just put it on the doctors. Yes. I mean I think another um, another approach that now is uh, increasingly being used in hospital systems is more synergy between clinical microbiologists and physicians, because then that doesn't put the responsibility on just physicians to understand all of the necessary basic science and molecular biology behind resistance and antibiotics. I mean, clinical microbiologists are trained to do that. And so, you know, whenever you have a patient 
and whenever you decide the course of antibiotics, you usually need to consult you know, either your physician, your PharmD, and your clinical microbiologist. And you have the synergy, and they make that decision. So not just one person needs to have all of this data stored yeah. in their head. It is yeah. a team. Yeah. I think that's really, you know, more than just mm -hmm. education, yeah. it's that synergy between different types of science. That's the future of Correct. medicine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, is ideal, right? This yes. way yeah. it's not on one person, and each person has their specialty. And can right, yeah, I think this reliance on physicians to know absolutely everything mm -hmm. kind of dilutes the value of, mm -hmm. you know, PharmDs, for example, or clinical microbiologists mm -hmm. that are really at the forefront of, you know, making sure patients are getting the right antibiotics, they're not being right. prescribed, um, or they're getting the antibiotics that are well-suited for them for that specific type of infection, like patient-directed therapy rather than just broad-spectrum imperative mm -hmm. therapy, I guess. Good. But I guess to even, like, touch on something just on the actual clinical side of things, where the symptoms that you're seeing, because you mentioned, of course, we know, okay, the, you got dysbiosis going on and whatnot, but the symptoms that you're looking at, the diarrhea, the fever, nausea, I mean, these are, that's a very blurry set of things to look at to try and make sense of what's happening. Is this purely dysbiosis? Is this a foodborne illness? Is this, you know, is this something else? And so. Well, fever is not going to be caused, be dysbiosis unless it allows an infection mm -hmm. to come in and produce the disease. But bloating, abdominal pain, uh, constipation, uh, change in bowel habits could be, and of course brain function. Uh, mood is very much involved with dysbiosis. I mean, we uh, in medicine we know people with IBS are irritable, they're anxious, they're uh, depressed, uh, have a lot of psychological problems, and this relates to the connection between the brain and the GI tract. Mm -hmm. uh, to explain that, and I guess just um, I mean to just to go off of that, it seems like there's because a lot of these symptoms also take time to develop, and so some some like uh, you mentioned a few, but uh, because they take time to develop, and you know the, as the patient takes the the patient first goes through, and by the time, say, they, the first time they visit a doctor, they are only showing a few of these that make it more difficult to sort of be diagnosed. And at a later stage, they it takes a little bit of a while for them to show these different things. I guess one of the things that might also help is, as the, which also kind of connects to the idea of informing the public as a remedy, because you as a friend, as a cousin, family member, what have you, if you're observing and keeping track of these symptoms, uh, on, uh, on, affected, uh, on a family member that's affected, you can keep better track of it than the person that's currently experiencing it and is just having a whole sort of just a, a whole barrage of symptoms taking place. And so maybe you might be the, the person that's better informed to go and tell them, hey, go visit a doctor, do this mm -hmm. and so forth. And so I think that that sort of connects a little bit back to, yes, both sides uh, need to be informed, the doctor and the patients, but there's still this sort of uh, push, there's been this neglect over a very long period of time where we didn't do as good of a job at getting this information to the public out. Mm -hmm. And I think it's unfair to say that the public just doesn't know, for example, but at the same time, we did do a, a really bad job of, I guess, of getting this information out. So have you seen anything in government institutions right now that are sort of really making a big push? Do you see a, do you have a positive outlook for the push that people are making or the government's making towards informing the public more? I think there is a lot more written about inappropriate antibiotics and how to use it, but we've been working at it for a long time. Mm -hmm. 
in the late 70s, the American Medical Association asked me to organize a two-part video um, presentation on the office management, uh, office use of antibiotics. This was in the 70s. And I asked three other heads of infectious diseases nationally uh, to join me in this thing. And we did these two parts. It was one of the most successful uh, programs the AMA ever did. But, you know, it tells you that we were having trouble with this even then. Mm -hmm. This is not a brand new problem. Uh, how to use antivirus, these powerful weapons. Uh, we haven't educated the public, we haven't educated the doctors. All those years, we've been trying. I guess it's also difficult because it's always changing too. I mean, these pathogens and these all these agents that are causing these diseases, I mean, they're changing, they're, they're becoming resistant to certain antibiotics that worked previously, now aren't working, and so it's, a, it's, a, it's gonna be a process where you have to just continuously keep up with the new Well, resistance. it's changing behavior, you know, people mm -hmm. think antibiotics work. So it's, uh, you may say, well, they don't, but when they get a disease, they have learned that antibiotics work. It's still on the brain. How do you get it out? <laughs> uh, and, and change in behavior is one of the most fundamental challenges of science, really. How do you get people to do things differently than they've been doing forever? I'm not good at that. I've tried two behavior modification interventions, one in a foreign country and once in this country, and I educated people but they didn't change behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's all about. So I guess the problem here is from this point forward, what we can do, since we already have all antibiotics all over the country. I mean, my parents have leftover prescription pills in their, ca in their cabinet um, in case we get sick. We, yeah. uh, um, oh. So every household has antibiotics. Yeah. People yeah. still prescribe antibiotics. It's so prevalent, and but the rate of new drug discovery has slowed down dramatically. Okay. So where do we go from here? Um, because resistance is already an issue. There's still drugs out there, and there's no new drugs made. So what do we do? <coughs> well, the, the antibiotics we have have caused the problem. You don't want new antibiotics. You want to stop that barrage. Mm -hmm. Stop it and begin to get narrow in your spectrum, narrow in your selection, not broad. Uh, and if you don't have a need for antibiotics, you don't take it. And if you have a need, you take the narrowest spectrum you can take. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of these antibiotics, like the fluoroquinolones, like Cipro, have just caused incredible problems. And there's some research here in the medical center that shows that it, it, has pro it produces cardiovascular damage and central nervous system damage, mm -hmm. to use that class of antibiotics. So uh, we're learning a lot about the hazards of antibiotics that go beyond microbe mm -hmm. resistance. So we've got to start over again. And the idea of getting new antibiotics, more powerful antibiotics, just makes me shudder. Yeah. Don't do that. I think, I think based on what you were saying in terms of the microbiota and you know isolating the, the species that could really 
um, or even like the taxa, whatever, the <laughs> isolating the species that could promote health, right? Once we establish a good set of those, wouldn't that take care of a lot of our problems? If we, if we have dysbiosis and then we introduce the proper microbiota, can we reestablish health? I guess? Well, one would hope so, but I still think the prebiotics are more than probi more important than probiotics. So that's my understanding, prebiotics are things that mom. make good okay, microbes right. in your gut, and it's called Food. <laughs> <laughs> Fiber. Yeah, yeah. And resistant starch. Right. What so, about, oh, what about the organs where microbiomes are important, um, microbiology are important, but are not exactly the gut? For example, the vagina or urinary tract or skin or yeah. those kind of organs. So, how do we maintain a good microbiota there? It's the same principle. Uh, I think food is important there too. It does have an impact on microbiota. Uh, the, uh, you could take those individual, you know, skin, it's by keeping your skin clean and certainly cleaning any injury, cuts or scratches very well. Uh, the vaginal microbiome is extremely interesting and uh, the glycogen content in the vaginal mucosa and, and uh, uh, Women that are uh, having proper ovarian activity, premenopausal, is very makes acidic environment, and that acid pH uh, really encourages strict anaerobic bacteria. The, where the microbiome goes south, in terms of vaginal microbiome, is in postmenopausal women, and here uh, the pH now is neutral. And the facultative anaerobes, the E. coli type organisms, the group B strep, are the ones that grow and propagate and cause UTI, urinary tract infections mm -hmm. uh, because there's not that protective acidic environment. Uh, and you just need to look at each of these, uh, the respiratory microbiome. You know, there's a, 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 a really effective barrier from the back of the throat to the lungs. Mm -hmm. There's an open connection, but motility patterns. Mm -hmm. The ciliary mucus blanket that moves everything uh, up and away from the lower parts of the lung really prevent very many bacteria or microbes to get very deep into the respiratory tract. But the flora of the, or the microbiota of the uh, oropharyngeal area is very important disease and health. Do you see a feature in microbiome transplant in those organs as well, um, beyond um, the colon or intestines? It's being looked at for vaginosis, uh, which is a, uh, a dysbi form of dysbiosis, particularly in postmenopausal women, but it can be premenopausal. Uh, and it's been being looked at there. Uh, it's being looked at in children uh, uh, infants that are born by cesarean section uh, where fecal uh, material vaginal secretions are being rubbed on the fetus mm -hmm. time of birth. Uh, but uh, I don't know of any other areas where it's being looked at. 
I mean, even on that topic, I guess you discussed sort of this. Um, I remember in a lecture with you, you mentioned the that the microbiome diversity of children was being heavily impaired by the current sort of Western trend, uh, just the current Western trend of, for example, just getting too, we're, essentially we're too clean, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. We're doing, because we're, it's, you know, it's all great, yeah. we're taking away the bad bacteria, but it seems like we're also taking away a lot of the yeah. good ones. Yeah, I so, think so. Can you, so, and I guess now, it's like, so just to not confuse our audience, because we're essentially saying, let's, Let's increase that diversity, but we also want to be careful not to essentially make them think that, oh, go 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 ahead and take your kid and always wash them, keep them away from all the dirt, keep them away from all these different things yeah, and whatnot. You know, Can you touch on that just to clarify? It, it, there are good bacteria, good microbiota, and bad. The bad produce disease, and that's the stuff that you're going to talk about with foodborne disease. But there's good microbes that are around people or have them all over their body, the 100 trillion bacteria colonizing, and the bacteria are everywhere, you touch practically. And kids, uh, uh, infants that grow up on farms, infants that grow up, uh, grow up attending daycare center actually have less infectious diseases later in life. And there's a, uh, a theory that has a lot of data behind it that hadn't been totally proven uh, but that if you grow up in a microbially contaminated environment, uh, say in Africa, mm -hmm. Latin America, Southern Asia, uh, you will have less autoimmune diseases like lupus, you'll have less allergic disorders, uh, and that it'll have health benefits by stimulating and maturing your immune system. And this is a topic that needs to be really researched, but there is some strong feeling and some anecdotal data to suggest this could be right. But we in this country uh, are over-concerned with cleanliness in the uh, narrow sense, uh, cleanliness from any microbes. And we clean every environment, we clean the railing on the escalators, and uh, we are, and the food has to be clean as much as possible. And so when we travel to other countries, we are likely to get sick because we don't have the immune system to be able to handle that. So I think we, while there's a lot of research that needs to go on in this area, exposure to microbes is good. So for parents that are worried about their kids grubbing around in the dirt and the floor, more power to those kids. Go for it. <laughs> Bring those bugs home because they're going to be healthy. I think that's a perfect point to actually wrap yeah. up our, our entire series on this okay. agenda. This has been fascinating and yeah. an awesome progression <laughs> of topics. Thank you so much for joining right. us. Thank you. Yeah. So we're done. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Dr. Thank you all for thank doing that. Thanks for joining us on Microcast. Tune in next time to hear more about foodborne illnesses. Have a great day.